For many of you, last week you were thinking, as you approached the text this morning, I thought you preached that text last week, very, very long. Um, uh, I, I actually, if you were uh, paying close attention, you noticed that I really didn't get to the passage that I wanted to deal with by the time I was, whatever it was, 45, 50 minutes in. I uh, ended up introducing what I wanted everyone to be able to have in their mind by the time we got to the text that my introduction ended up being the sermon. That is not the first time that's happened to me uh, multiple times over. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're in the same sections we were last week, but I'm going to skip a really long introduction, so I'm going to help us get there quicker. But I do want to say to you, by way of introduction, to arm you with the thought of the argumentation, why, if you've been attending uh, Redeemer for the last um, at least six months, you're sensing a, 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 it's repetitive in nature and what it's getting after each and every sermon. And you'd have to ask yourself, is it, is, it, is it Pastor Adam who's just wanting to say the same thing, shortcut study, and be able to regurgitate what he studied last week and get away with it? Or is it Pastor Dan just taking from him those cues, and when it was his turn, he then jumped in and did it? Why so much? Or is it Paul who's laboring so intensely because of the content we must get right? That would be my argument, that it's Paul who's laboring so intensely that we cannot get this, con- this content wrong because it's ground zero in the issue of justification. It's ground zero. I want to give you uh, uh, why this is so important or why this text is so uh, such a, a ground zero level of argumentation regarding justification of which each one of you should be concerned. Because, again, you're here on Lord's Day, which indicates there's something to be said for your hope that rests in Christ. So, so uh, there, there's something to be said that you believe you're among his people. You are uh, one numbered among him. Your faith, you were singing that he washed us in his blood. That's you. You're saying, yes, that's me. So, so how would you articulate that? How do you think you're in the union to him? I'll give you three opposing views, just briefly by introduction. Again, because this is what we're going to labor for, or what we have been laboring for, yet again we'll do this morning, that you cannot be justified. I I want you to wrap your mind around this, and and I'm not trying to pejoratively uh, label anyone. It's not, we're not in a debate I'm not here to, to uh, dismantle uh, another uh, uh, religion. I'm not here to dismantle the arguments put forward by other Protestants. I'm not here to, to split fine hairs. I, I, so I can't go off into the weeds. But let me give you a basic RCism or Roman Catholicism. Let me just give you a basic. I'm not here to dismantle or destroy or misrepresent. I'm trying to help you zero in on this text and these themes to be able to wrap your mind around a distinct quality, a faith that truly terminates on one person. That one person being Jesus Christ and not you. That this is an issue. Let me just say, you cannot be justified The pathway for you to be indeed hearing a just verdict of mercy from God is not by means of your cooperating with grace. It isn't. And that's an arceism. 
It just if you're from Roman Catholicism, if you're new to Protestantism, if you remember being raised RC and then now being Protestant, what are the distinctions? Perhaps you lack understanding on the distinctions. Let me just give you an easy one to think in terms of cooperating with grace. It is not how you will be justified. Remember, the issue in justification is that it deals with internal, indwelling sin. That is what you bring to the relationship. So there can't be a means of grace that thereupon you and your indwelling sin that never goes away improves upon in order to bring a complete package together to thereby both means receive a just verdict. This passage is so important for us in thinking in those terms. Also, a second view that we have considered as well, that you cannot be justified Apart from Christ, this is the view of universalism. We've heard it articulated in different strands of thought. Some would be Protestant lines. I spoke with a seminary professor one time when I was taking a Greek class just over here at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. I was taking a Greek class a few years ago. And I spoke with the prof afterward, and he had articulated to me, a firm Protestant, an elder within a mainline denomination, And he argued for universalism. We've seen it in uh, uh, Roman Catholic circles as well, and we discussed that in small groups and through the videos discussions uh, many, many weeks ago. But you remember the argument was that Christ is not an exclusive route, but he is a privileged route. This Paul denies. Thirdly, why is this such an important time? This text, these texts here in Galatians for me as a listener this morning. What, 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 what is Paul dismantling? If I just grasp the text, he's dismantling my thought that I can be justified by cooperating with grace. I just, I have indwelling sin that cannot advance grace no matter how hard I try. I cannot be justified apart from him um, in a type of universalism. Um, Thirdly, a third view to consider. You, individual person this morning, myself included, you cannot be justified through the Ten Commandments. This is what you consider forms of Judaism, various forms of Judaism. Ben Shapiro, perhaps, is probably the most um, uh, 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 mainstream individual in media these days who would uh, put forth such an argument of how he would consider himself in Judaism and in relation to God. He'd say, again, I consider myself saved in whatever terms. I try to do good and basically follow the Ten Commandments. With all of these concerns whether they're yours individually or yours is a little bit more, uh, uh, a little bit different than these that have articulated in three different strands of considering justification. The issue for you is still, how do you then conceive? If it isn't one of these three, but it is altogether different, how do you conceive of your relation to God? If you say, I'm justified in the immaterial self, how do you get there? Paul is arguing strongly 
for how one gets there this morning from our text. Now, I'm going to give you one more piece that I gave you last week. Um, and that is, this is where I want to start this morning. So I am actually, as promised, starting in my text this time. Um, perhaps someone is listening. You remember, our, Paul has been arguing since the beginning of chapter 3. Let's just start there. And I'm not going to scan the whole entire chapter and lose my 45 minutes. I'm not. I'm just, let's consider it scanned. But the argument that he's been making all the way up to this point through chapter 3 is speaking, or as I said last week, holding court to the church. Here's the apostle. Uh, uh, Again, I'm not pretending to be him. I'm simply just using this. Here's the apostle. He's making argument to the church about justification that it's received through the vehicle of faith. And then someone who is a naysayer, let's say, is hearing and listening in, waiting for their opportunity to pounce. That as he presents the gospel to the churches of Galatia, these naysayers are waiting, calculating, listening, and then going to insert where they know he is weakest. So as he speaks of justification through faith alone, someone is listening and they say this. And I want you to wrap your mind around this argumentation as we jump into the text. Someone is hearing Paul as he asks, I ask you only this. Are you in union through faith or by working? Let me just ask you, how are you? So I'm asking you. And you're listening and you're thinking, is my union to Jesus Christ, he has washed us in his blood, is my union to him through working various schemes, very ethical behaviors, very different types of micromanagement laws, or through the empty vessel of faith? How am I in union? Paul says through faith, the argument of the naysayer is this, and this is where we begin in our text this morning. I mentioned this to you last week. But Paul, you have made a mistake in articulating the promise that was given to Abraham, and here is why. And so here's Paul standing, you're the church, I'm Paul, and a naysayer is kind of coming over. This is how we'll envision the the debate happening in the text this morning. A naysayer, that is a Judaizer. That that, that individual comes over to whom Paul is addressing the church. Who has bewitched you? Who's made your eyes go like this? Who has done this to you? This guy. Okay, here here he comes. He says, aha, yes, because I can point to you right now how Paul has falsely declared a gospel to you. So, Paul, how is it? How is it that I have done so falsely? How I have preached the gospel wrongly? And it is this. You have forgotten that the law was given 430 years after the covenant that was made, for, made with Abraham. See, you're arguing. But, but remember Abraham. Look at, look at verse 6. Just as Abraham. If you go down through the text, Abraham, 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 Abraham. He's arguing for the promise that was given to Abraham. An individual comes up and says, yes, sure, not a problem. God gave promise to Abraham, but you're forgetting redemptive history has moved on. We don't need to be so focused on promise. Because you forget, 430 years after that promise was made, the law was given. What difference does that make? Well, says the naysayer, the law was given as a later addition to the promise. Thus, Changing the promise, fundamentally changing the way we approach God for justification. Sure, maybe Abraham was indeed justified by faith, but 430 years later we found out faith is not enough. So Paul hearing that, 
did not sit and say, oh, okay, yeah, I guess you're right. I forgot about the law. No, you've wrongly handled the nature of how the law relates to you, how you relate to it, and the role of grace and law. You've misunderstood. So now in verse 15, as you look in your Bible, Paul begins to unwind this confusion. And the confusion being that the law subjects the promise to new conditions. It's not the way that it used to be, Paul. The law came, and it took the promise that was given, yes, by faith, sure. But it took this promise after 430 years later and put new obligations on it. Promise plus, we'll call it. Promise 2.0. It's different now. Notice verse 15. To give a human example... Of why this cannot be so. Let, let me explain to you transactions, covenantal transactions, how they work. Uh, uh, because you're mishandling promise and law. Let me give you a human example, brothers. So now Paul once again redirects to the church in, our, in, our, in, in the way that we're kind of envisioning the theater that's taking place where this argument is. He redirects to the brothers, to the church. He says this, even with a man-made covenant... No one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Think about that for a moment. That is, once a covenant has become legal, I mentioned this to you last week in the setup. Once a covenant has become legal, no third party can void it. Neither can they add to it or he add to it further conditions toward its fulfillment. I mentioned this to you last week in passing, and it felt like in passing for me, of which it didn't for you, but it felt like in passing for me, I was just getting going, and I had gone way over my time. But I mentioned to you this idea of what many of us here in the city experience, many of the younger folks experience, uh, apartment renting, that you have a contract or a legal binding uh, one-on-one with, between you and your landlord. There's no third party who can come into that covenantal arrangement and change the fulfillment or the conditions of your dwelling in that apartment. No third party can come in. Your neighbor cannot say, I want you to do X in order to live here next door to me. You say, well, I don't have a covenant with you. I have a contract, a legal contract, binding me and the landlord, not... Me and the landlord, at a later time, you don't like something in that contract and you can violate the terms of my contract that I share with the landlord. No third party can do that, Paul says. Now notice he adds at the very beginning, even among men. What is the implication to be as Paul ramps up his argument? But how much greater would the violation be for a third party at a latter date or a latter time How much greater would the violation be for that third party to attempt to alter a covenant that God has established? Even in human terms, let me give you a human example. Even among men, how much greater would the violation be? Even with a man-made covenant between two parties, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified between these two parties. How much greater would the violation be if someone violated a covenant that God had established? We would find that outrageous. 
perhaps even more than outrageous, impossible. Now, with that concept in mind that Paul gave you a human example of how a covenant works between two members, keep that in mind as we progress, that a covenant ratified, right? So, so we're going to see who's in the covenant relations. Because again, it's going to say, but the promise is given to Abraham. Paul, you're missing it. 430 years later, that new covenant annulled this covenant, Paul says, how could that, no, 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 you misunderstand covenantal relations. A third party cannot come along and annul or void a previously ratified covenant. It cannot do it. Because remember, a covenant ratified is a covenant inviolable. You appreciate this basic sense of justice regularly. Let's, carry, let's carefully look forward then to God's covenant arrangement with the man Abraham. Verse 16. Now, with that in mind, that a covenant ratified is a covenant inviolable. You cannot do anything. No third party can do anything with it. Let's now explain the covenant arrangement. Now, verse 16. The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Okay, clear enough. Fair, 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 fair enough. We're getting the parties that are involved in the covenant process. Yes, yes, yes. We know the promises were made to Abraham. And then Paul adds, and to his offspring. Uh, Okay, okay, okay. I got the categories. It's going to be to Abraham and then to his lineage. It's to his offspring. Okay, well, let's be clear, Paul says. This is where the text needs to be considered more carefully. Paul says, it does not say lest you're, you're misunderstanding who I'm referencing. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And then he clarifies to say, okay, so it's not to many different multiple promises. We're not made to multiplicity of offsprings. This, the per- this person, this person, this person. What is this promise and to whom has it been made? Again, be careful. It does not say, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Got it. No, no, listen to me more carefully. It does not say. No, no, we're listening to what it said. I want you to be careful and understand it fully. It does not say, and to offsprings. Referring to many but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. What's going on here? Well, you see, Paul's argument is that the covenant announced to Abraham we don't certainly, as you very well know, have time to go back to the Genesis account. But I'm relying upon your familiarity. And Pastor Dan handled those texts earlier. You remember the promise being made to Abraham. Paul is here arguing that the covenant announced to Abraham was a covenant already ratified. In who? In Christ. It is as if Paul is here saying 
the promises were spoken to Christ when Abraham heard them. What does this do to Paul's overall argument so far in the text? It is this. Paul is placing Christ, not Abraham, at the center of the promise. Abraham responds, and this is important for you to grasp, the nature of the gospel. Because it's the same promise that you're hearing. Abraham responds to the promise. Abraham does not establish the promise. Well, what does it mean further? Perhaps you're asking. I hope you are. It makes sense that we would, but we would ask. But what does it mean that the promise of the gospel, the promise, he says, not to offsprings who are many. No, no, no. I get it. No, you don't. It does not say. Do you understand what it is not saying? It's not saying to many. It is saying to one. And do you know who that one is in whom the promise resides? Abraham. No. Christ. Okay, if I could follow you that far, what does it mean then that the promise of the gospel was made in Christ prior to Abraham's hearing it? What does that mean for it? What does it mean that the promise that I, Adam Thomas, rely upon now was made in Christ upon whom I rely before Abraham heard it? What does that mean for me? Well, it discloses two things I want to share with you briefly. It discloses two things about the nature of the promise. And and, and I want you to rest upon these. It tells us two things about the nature of the promise. Number one, the promise is divine. The promise isn't man-made. It's not man-written. It cannot be man-made and manipulated. Because the promise doesn't belong to us. We rest upon it. In hearing it, we receive it. Because the promise coming to us is a divine promise. The promise of the gospel, spoken in and unto Christ, is a divine promise. Number two, again, why does that matter? Because if it, do you believe it? Do you believe it? Does faith arise and rest upon it? If you have concerns about it, how indeed could I be just simply through the vehicle of faith? Because God promised it. The origins of this good news announcement is divinity. Not the weak and frail flesh of humanity. It's not a good spin from a good preacher. The good news announcement is divine in its origin. Number two, it necessarily then follows, and I want you to anchor even deep, more deeply upon the promise that you're trusting and resting upon as we draw to the table in just a few moments. 
not only is the promise divine, but then if it is indeed divine, as it was spoken in Christ long before Abraham ever was, then that means that by divinity, the promise is also inviolable by nature. It's inviolable by nature. What do I mean by that? Again, rest. The promise that's announced to you, the good news announcement upon which you're receiving and resting cannot be changed. It's not that it may or may not be changed. I want you to, 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 to let faith arise, ascend, and rest upon that promise, upon that person of promise, because it's a divine promise. And if it be divine, then it is inviolable by nature. It's not that it may be spun, it may be changed. I may fumble it away. No, no, let me just say, it cannot. You cannot. Think about it this way. If the promise can be violated, if the promise even 430 years later can be fundamentally changed, then God is a liar. Because he gave it by promise. He would have promised us something through the person Jesus Christ and would have changed it and taken it away. Paul's argument is Quite simple, honestly. It could be tricky in a first read, but if we really just consider it just for a moment, it makes all the sense of the world, of course. The promise that Abraham that day heard was a promise already made in Christ, the Son of God, who is also the guarantee or the surety of the promise's fulfillment. It was made unto him, and he materially fulfilled it and forever upholds it. It is a covenant inviolable. Notice how Paul clarifies the nature of the law and the gospel. Then then how do they relate? How does the law relate? And I, I feel great reading verse 17 because... I often feel like in the midst of speaking, I want to say about 10,000 times, this is what I mean, trying to get it across, like spit it out already. This, this is what I mean. A great statement here by Paul, trying to clarify, please wrap your mind around this, because it might seem tricky, but it isn't. It really is either law or gospel. You don't need to get muddled in the middle confusing the two and constantly being confused. So he says in verse 17, to make sure we're clear, this is what I mean. The law, verse 17, which came 430 years afterward, of which gentleman A brought up. We'll just pretend. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. It it does not. In fact, as we noted a moment ago, it cannot. So as to make the promise that he made void. 
For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. Do you understand that? Sure. Then he concludes, well, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. You see, if we walked all the way through chapter 3 again and again and again and we milk it for all that it's worth and try to grow thereby by every pass of the argumentation that Paul is making, let it be absolutely clear here in verses 17 and 18. Paul is making the argument unto you for your own faith's nutrition that covenantally, whether we're talking about, let me give you a man-made example, brothers, that would make sense to you. How much more in divine covenants? Let it be clear what God has done. If it comes by law, it doesn't come by promise. Okay, fine. No, 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 it's not fine. God gave it by promise. So then it can't come by any other means to you than by promise. You see, covenantally, Actually, truly, legally, it is impossible, however we slice it, to change the basis of our inheritance this morning and this day as we approach this table. It is covenantally, it is actually, it is truly, it is legally impossible to change the basis of your inheritance from grace, from faith, and from promise to that of personal obligation, performance, and law-keeping. It's impossible. A covenant ratified is a covenant inviolable. And he issued this promise in Christ. For all of its complexities, again, it is rather simple. The Belgic Confession towards our time, as we move toward our time of conclusion, beautifully articulates this entire argumentation. It states it so perfectly as a Reformation confession. Let me read it for you. Please, hear it. For your own soul's nourishment. The Belgian Confession says this, quote, For it must necessarily follow. It cannot go in any other direction. No other direction. Can't go this way, can't go that. Paul has us on the ridge. Here it is. If this indeed be true, it must necessarily then follow. Either that we, or either that all we need for our salvation is not in Jesus Christ, or if it is all in him, that one who has Jesus Christ through faith has complete salvation. No, no, you misunderstood. That was the promise. The law has come, and it subject, subjected the promise to new conditions. You mis- no, 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 no. No, it must follow that if it is in him, 
that one who has Jesus Christ through faith has with him complete salvation. It is therefore a terrible blasphemy to assert that Christ is not sufficient. This is Paul's entire argument. But that something else is needed beside him. For the conclusion would then be that Christ is only half of a savior. But he has washed us in his blood. He is all that we cling to. You cannot come with hands full. Paul says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive your union through faith in the hearing or through law-keeping. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 